0: Okay, let's do a little more philosophy. So another quick quote by Thoreau that's very important. Thoreau says, and there are problems with Thoreau, and Nell Painter is the one to read on that, if interested. But Thoreau says, Why is it not more apt to anticipate and provide for reform? He's critiquing the concept of United States government. And he says, quote, Why does it not cherish its wise minority? Why does it cry and resist before it is heard? Why does it not encourage its citizens to be on the alert, to point out its own faults, and do better than it would have them? Why does it always crucify Christ, and excommunicate Copernicus and Luther, and pronounce Washington and Franklin rebels? End quote. So, food for thought there and this is for the ethics class in this final week of the virtual semester we will never forget spring 2020 ironic isn't it little synchronicity perhaps that it is 2020 almost like a spiritual 2020 vision having 2020 vision speaking of vision you know I'm going to go back to Spinoza here and there and he was, at the time he lived in 17th century Holland, he was considered one of the world's leading lens grinders. And he made, I've said this before, but the small lenses out of glass for the best scientists at the time in that part of the world for their new microscopes. So in many ways now we have 2020 lenses I wouldn't say they're rose-colored spectacles at all. I would say we are all equalized and seeing perhaps more clearly than ever in many ways, and that we need to come together here. And so this concept of equality and unity and the difference and the theoretical and practical differences as well, is something Spinoza was very interested in. And you can find those ideas in all of his philosophy, but especially in his theological political treatise or his unfinished political treatise. And I'm taken these days, when I have a chance, um, I have to wait till the semester's over to really do some more things that I want to do, but Jonathan Israel is a Brilliant early modern historian of philosophy, and uh, in his newest volume, he has several volumes uh, that are amazing. But in his newest volume, Enlightenment—well, I don't—it's not that new, a couple of years now. Enlightenment Contested: Philosophy, Modernity, and the Emancipation of Man, 1670 to 1752 it's a very specific time period in the western hemisphere and just to see if you can connect the dots and overlap with the themes you're hearing right now with this coronavirus and the xenophobic comments and fears that are coming out of some of the people in this country uh, against Chinese Americans Uh, Asian Americans in general, and we're seeing a rise in hate crimes since the coronavirus against particularly Asian Americans, and this sort of anti-Chinese sentiment. But what is so sad and ironic is that this is not new. So 400 years ago, in a chapter titled by Jonathan Israel, titled Spinoza, Confucius, and Classic Chinese Philosophy... So, Israel writes, and I'll just read a few passages, and again, you see if you can thread the needle, so to speak. A central challenge for the Western Enlightenment, and he has W in lowercase letters in case you're already critiquing him for being another white man, but he's maybe one of the white allies. A central challenge for the Western Enlightenment as a whole in the 18th century was the question of how to classify "quote the other. Efforts were made by the Europeans to reach general assessments of Islamic, Indian, and Chinese thought. But as so often in cases of attempts at cross-cultural evaluation, the result was curiously self-centered and limited. Western philosophers strongly Uh, strove valiantly to grasp the fundamentals of classical Chinese philosophy, but ended up in the main, merely mirroring their own prior obsessions. I'm reminded here for the core senior sem class, if you ever get to this podcast, um, that we read Hobson, right, and his essay on the use of ideas by the west that actually originated in the east without giving the east credit so we studied that this semester so just interesting side notes here Uh, israel writes the radical enlightenment's enthusiasm for what it took to be classical chinese thought originated during the third quarter of the 17th century among a small but remarkable group of libertine deist neo-epicureans Woohoo! more heroes of the epicurean sort the first uh, esprit fort, he says, or suspected atheist in scare quotes, Ryman, R E I M M A N N, I think, calls him, I can't pronounce some certain words, so I apologize, calls him to hit on the idea of using Chinese culture as a subversive strategy within Western intellectual debate, apparently, was Isaac Vossius, the first suspected atheist, 1618 to 89 and Vossius, I'm aware of, who deployed the evidence of Chinese antiquity and the ancient character of their philosophy during the late 1650s as part of his campaign to sap confidence in biblical chronology and notions of the Prisca Theologia as well as the centrality of revelation. So, end quote for now. Core senior Sam does any of this resonate with you? Does that sound familiar to things we've talked about this semester in our own ways? So Chinese society quote held Vossius in his Verarium Observationum Liber so 1685 his foremost contribution to radical thought was not just the oldest but also the most praiseworthy section of civilized humanity. If one measures men's achievements as one should Israel says perhaps in terms of peace stability and cultivation of the arts and sciences end quote so we're going to try to do that even though we're living in a new world now at Roger Williams University we are going to cultivate peace stability and the arts and the sciences together Um, If engineers have never heard of the term epistemology, then it would be of wonderful collaboration to look that up and combine in our efforts, both in the arts and the sciences, in an engineering sort of way, maybe interdisciplinary. And so Israel goes on to write about this and how they knew Spinoza and the various folks living in Holland How they lived next to spinoza as he says in the hague um, and when he's talking about sir william temple the english diplomat 1628 to 99 where quote they were virtual neighbors and all acquainted with spinoza end quote well here we are virtual neighbors again and some of us acquainted with deep spinoza he says, "quote For theirs, were minds very much in opposition to the received thinking of their time." And he goes on to write that and I won't I, I won't pronounce the French very well, but it's really awesome. Um, but he goes on to write that Temple, right? He's talking about Sir William Temple. Temple, for his part, was labeled an atheist by his foes, but praised by Dutch libertine friends as a wise republican. He fully endorsed Saint Ebermann's preference for Epicurean moral philosophy and the pursuit of calm enjoyment of life and philosophical peace of mind. End quote. Now, the concept of philosophical peace of mind is fascinating because if you don't get a chance to do that yourself and move within that space privately, then I'm not sure that's possible. That's just a theoretical aside for you to contemplate. Israel writes, quote, A true cosmopolitan, much influenced by Italian and French, skeptics, libertines, and republicans like Montaigne, Boccaccio, Machiavelli, and Pedro Paolo. Temple, too, greatly admired what he had learned of China and especially Confucius. Quote, who, he said, was the most learned, wise, and virtuous of all the Chinese philosophers. It was his opinion that there is no better model for men to emulate in organizing their lives than the wisdom of Confucius, temple like Vosius and Saint Eremond, being struck especially by the close parallelism between philosophical insight based on reason and the practical ordering of human life and politics on earth. Confucius's, quote, chief principle, observed Temple, was that everyone ought to, quote, study and endeavor the improving and perfecting of his own natural reason to the greatest height he is capable or she is capable, so as he may never, or as seldom as can be, err and deviate from the law of nature in the course and conduct of his life. End quote, being convinced that, quote, in this perfection of natural reason consists the perfection of body and mind and the utmost or supreme happiness of mankind. Such Neo Epicurean eulogy of Confucius and of Chinese thought later prompted Ryman to explain, exclaim Exclaim. Hmm. Freudian slip, explain, exclaim, echoing Budaius' maxim about Spinozism before Spinoza. Quote, there was Epicureanism in China both before and after Epicurus, end quote. So that's all Jonathan Israel. And again, amazing historian of philosophy, East and West now, it seems. So I just wanted to throw this out there. Uh, not really a fast pitch, just a slow ball. To uh, consider the overlaps in what we've been learning, what I said in "Love Thy Neighbor" in an earlier podcast. Get more philosophy going here. Uh, I've been indulging in these podcasts, uh, being in my home, <laughs> and. Having had an extremely rough end of the semester, as we all have, but as a colleague of mine said, I think you've dealt with more than most, I wonder. Anyway, um, in the meantime, here we are again. I hope you get something out of this. I'm overlapping this with Thoreau for the ethics class with existentialism and some film studies with intro, and of course the modern folks are taking their Kant final oral exam, so dialogue, I decided to do dialogue final exams, and this is what we're grappling with in Kant right now, and probably would be the crux of the matter, and the hardest thing to try to disprove in Kant, Immanuel Kant, when he writes, and I'm going to quote from the Prolegomena that we're using at the moment. There are many laws of nature, this is Kant, quote, There are many laws of nature that we can know only through experience, but lawfulness in the connection of appearances, i.e. nature in general, we cannot come to know through any experience, because experience itself has need of such laws, which lie a priori at the basis of its possibility." The possibility of experience in general is thus at the same time the universal law of nature, and the principles of the former are themselves the laws of the latter. For we are not acquainted with nature except as the sum total of appearances, i.e. of the representations in us, and so we cannot get the laws of their connection from anywhere else except the principles of their connection in us, i.e. from the conditions of necessary unification in one consciousness, which unification constitutes the possibility of experience. So this is Kant's main point in his epistemology, you know, his big point, and very hard to disprove. And I'll just read to you quickly, as Roger, the philosopher Roger Scruton wrote, about how big of a deal this is, right? Whether we're taking Wittgenstein on meaning and language or, you know, um, talking about Leibniz prior to Kant and everything in the history of Western canon, philosophy canon, uh, Scruton writes that it does not directly, it does not argue directly that subjects depend upon objects, Instead, in Kant, it shows that subjects depend upon communities of subjects and therefore on the publicly observable world that establishes their shared frame of reference. That sounds very Marx, Marxist. If valid, the transcendental deduction achieves a result of immense significance. It establishes the objectivity of my world while assuming no more than my point of view on it. End quote. Again, if we're talking about a multitude of perspectives, then back to Patricia Pister's in our technological age, I'm not sure that that's going to work, and of course that's not Kant's point, although hermeneutics love love Kant, and I get why, and he is a bridge between empiricism and rationalism and the beginning of phenomenology in many ways, no doubt. (laughs) But that also existed in Epicurus, especially in Lucretius, and and as we just heard from Jonathan Israel in China and in the East way before Epicurus. So with all due respect, again, to these great thinkers that I am still also grappling with, teaching really shows you what you can talk about and what you can't. You might understand something... But you might not be able to talk about it. I have always held that position. Many philosophers believe that you can't understand something without talking about it. As someone with a disability in language and in sound, etc and meaning and it's they're all connected and reading and writing. basically anything that has to do with the overlap between sound and meaning and language, then I disagree, but that has yet to be shown and One of the most difficult things for any expert to unpack is how to recognize their own errors in reasoning, something I have always held and said, but especially since 2009 onward. And I'll spend the rest of my life, I guess, trying to prove it. So here is my current favorite quote at the moment by Thoreau, Henry David, who grew up not that far from us over here in New England. It is not a man's duty as a matter of course to devote himself to the eradication of any, even the most enormous wrong. He may still, she may still, properly have other concerns to engage him or her, but it is his duty, at least, to wash his hands of it, and if he gives it no thought longer, not to give it practically his support. If I devote myself to other pursuits and contemplations, I must first see, at least, that I do not pursue them sitting upon another man's shoulders. I must get off him first, that he may pursue his contemplations too. End quote.
1: ...are suppressed. So the truth we're talking about here is that psychic phenomena are really true, like number one and number two in that list. Those are true, but many find them either embarrassing or frightening. And so from a mainstream perspective, it is suppressed. Another consequence is that esoteric ideas about magic, but minus all of the superstition and the ritual and so on, that is also real. So, so stories from 20,000 years ago, all the way from shamanism to today, about magic are real, at least the essence of it is real. The other thing is, everyone I have ever met is interested in these phenomena, including people who are very skeptical they're still interested and the reason we know that it's interesting is all you need to look at is television and movies every other show has some element of psychic phenomena or something spiritual in it and that's because people are interested in it whatever the explanation is what i IANS our organization is all about is uh, validating people's experiences and what you have been about in the career here is validating this phenomenon, and in that you you have experienced a lot of resistance, I'm sure, through your lifetime to the paths and what you've uh, promoted. So, do you have a few comments on the process of validation that it will be useful for others for saying, you know, you you are real, what has happened to you is real, and you should be less subjective to the outside criticism criticism or fear that that engenders well it, it helps if you're iconoclastic uh, by temperament uh the reason why i've been able to do this for quite a long time is because i don't really care what other people think I, I got into this uh not as a way of trying to confirm experiences because Well, I've had psychic experiences, that wasn't the driver, it was really about curiosity. So one of the things you you learn at the leading edge of knowledge and science is that nobody knows what the right answers are, but you can use methods to progressively get higher and higher confidence in it. So I would say then that, uh, especially when it comes to human experience, that the person who has the experience is the expert no, no one can deny their own experience. I mean, you go crazy if you start denying your own experience. So if you have an experience, you're sure that it happened. Yeah, we have psychological frailties, and sometimes we misremember things. But one of the curious aspects of, of certain experiences that people have, certainly near-death experiences in this category, is that transformative experiences are extremely clear, and they don't fade. They don't change over time.
2: That's right. That's
1: very different than coming up with a confabulation if you sort of misremember a birthday or something or something happened you could easily change that over time because you don't have the details right but for something which is transformative it is burned into your memory and it is crystal clear so the reason why i mentioned that that strange awakening experience i had when i was 20 years old i remember that with crystal clarity about a 15 minute period of just before to just after that I don't really remember very well what happened earlier in the day or even later in the day. But that experience, I remember crystal clear. And so, again, you you are the best expert of a transformative experience, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says.
0: So um, I want to hear... I, Ted, we're going to get to your, all the fascinating things about you shortly. But I, Mary, talk about your
3: new... A career in music. This is so fascinating. Yeah, I guess it's. I guess it's a career. I don't. I. I, I do and don't think of it that way. But what happened to me was that um, April seventeenth, two thousand and seven, I had a, a minor surgery on my right arm, and it wasn't a big deal. Um, and but I did have to go under general anesthetic, and I came out from under the surgery and. I felt very strange, but I didn't worry about that because I'd just gone under general anesthetic. So I figured in a day or so I'll feel normal. Um, but I kept not feeling like myself, and the best way I can describe it is that you haven't experienced your whole life of of how the the inside of your mind sounds. You know the your thoughts. You know the the whether or not you sometimes let music in. Um, all of a sudden mine had music at the forefront of it all day all night and every single thing that anyone said turned into music and melodies would go past and if i would see a street sign the street sign became musical rather than just being a spoken thing or, or a reading thing it was a musical thing and um it in the beginning was sort of tumultuous and hard and scary and i felt like um I felt like something, um, I I wasn't happy about it. And then uh, after a couple of months of not sleeping very well, I I just looked at myself in the mirror one day and said, this isn't going to change. You're going to have to start dealing with it. And the way to deal with it is to probably study music. Um, And so um, having never had any ambition at all um, as a musician or a songwriter, I began... Now realizing it was the only thing I could do with this, and so I started studying first um, songwriting structure because I didn't really know a verse from a chorus. I, I didn't even know what a lot of the musical terms meant. And then I had taken piano as a kid, but I had not been very diligent about practicing, and I had forgotten how to read music, and and um, I didn't. I certainly didn't know how to play music, and um, but I started. Trying to sing for another musician what I heard in my head.
0: Let the historical record show that I do not have it worse than most. This is a global pandemic. So many people are on the front lines. Our nurses and doctors are dying. Our grocery store workers are often folks paid, you know, low hourly wages or... Adolescents or young adults working all on the front lines our our police, our firefighters, etc, etc et etc, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. so I would think that they have it much worse, but I think there's a few variables missing that folks think they're aware of, and they're not, and so maybe that was what that was about, but let's just be clear: there are people dying. There are children dying une- uh, unexpectedly and who didn't have to die due to COVID-19, and a lot of these individuals are also dying in the hospitals where their loved ones are not allowed to visit. Our loved ones in retirement homes are having to live out their days alone or with their friends in their retirement homes. is fine, but they can't see their family. Our Seniors can't have graduation, both high school and college. There will be no graduation ceremony. Our young children, no daycare, no school. Our sports teams, no athletics. And the list goes on and on and on and on. So what I meant when I said earlier that my colleagues said I have it pretty bad is only that I survived covid all while also surviving a lot of other things that I think will become more clear as time passes. But we're all in this together, and I would never compare pain or pains.